Welcome to Novel Pairings, a podcast dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. This summer on Patreon, our Classics Club has been voyaging across the Aegean Sea with Odysseus, reading Emily Wilson's brilliant translation of Homer's epic poem. To deepen our experience with this ancient text, we're offering ongoing opportunities for public scholarship and reading in community. Today, we're sharing one of these Patreon-exclusive episodes with all of you and inviting you to come set sail with us this summer, because it's not too late. In this episode, we're unpacking translator Wilson's introduction to the Odyssey. This might sound dry, but we promise her thoughts on ancient Greek culture, the role of story in Greek life, and the essential themes of the Odyssey are riveting, whether or not you're familiar with the text. If this level of nerdy deep dive speaks to your reader soul, our Patreon Classics Club might be a perfect place for you to spend your summer. We have bonus episode deep dives into Greek mythology, recaps for the first half of the Odyssey with more to come, and upcoming book club meetings where you can discuss this classic text with other modern readers. Join at the Literature Scholar level to access all of our Odyssey bonus material, plus our back catalog of classes and episodes to go deeper into whatever books you're picking up this summer. Enrollment is always open, and we'd love to see you there. Hey, Classics Club. Today, we are excited to be kicking off our slow down summer, our Greek odyssey, literally, with all of you by discussing the introduction of Emily Wilson's wonderful translation of the odyssey and just sharing a little bit about what you can expect from us here on the Patreon feed this summer. Yes, I think you can expect to hear a little bit of paper shuffling and book oh, opening. Yeah. <laughs> so if you like that kind of ambiance, this episode is for you. These episodes are for you because we've got a lot of notes and a lot to discuss and a lot to reference in this very rich introduction and very rich text. So Sarah, just to make sure that we are really clear on what we're offering this summer, if you are a literature lover at the $5 level, Each Friday, you will get one bonus episode, just like usual. Some of these bonus episodes might be related to the Odyssey. Some of them are going to be related to our summer reading. Some might be related to classics or literary conversations in general. That is what you can expect. If you are a literature scholar at the $8 level, you will get those regular bonus episodes, but in addition, you will get these Odyssey recaps. So these recaps are at the $8 level. If you have been hanging out with us at the $5 level, we are so glad you're here and grateful for your support. And we also just want to encourage you or welcome you up to the $8 level so that you can enjoy these recaps with us and a richer, deeper reading experience of the Odyssey. We are here to provide everyone with various levels of support just like we would do in our classrooms back in the day. Um, But we just want you to know what is on offer at that higher tier where you get classes and book conversation and these recap episodes. This first one, recapping the intro, is for everybody. 
yeah, we think this will give everyone a good idea of whether reading the Odyssey is right for you this summer or not. And while we would love to have everyone come on this Aegean adventure with us, if it's just not for you, you'll still be getting plenty of of good stuff oh, at yeah. that literature lover tier. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get into this, Chelsea, because as you said, this introduction is thorough and expansive. And I know before you, I think, got your book, I was like, we should definitely do an episode on the intro. And you were like, oh, yeah, that'll be no no problem. I yeah. can read that in an <laughs> afternoon. <laughs> and then you got your book and you're like, oh. <laughs> so this intro is lengthy yeah. and I think worthwhile, but we also know that Number one, not everyone is reading the Emily Wilson translation. You might have a favorite translation. You might have a free translation that you are reading, and that's totally fine. We want to give you the highlights of her introduction in case you're reading a different translation. Or you may have taken one look at that intro and thought, nope, not for me. (laughs) And that's totally fine too. So we'll be kind of going through what we think is going to be most helpful for us at the start of this journey, we will likely be referring back to the intro throughout these recap episodes and in our classes this summer. So if we totally skip a section and you're like, wait, you didn't talk about this and it was so interesting to me, we'll likely get back to it. But these are the things we think are most interesting and important to consider before beginning actually reading the Odyssey. Sarah, one thing that I kept thinking about when I was reading this introduction is how so many of our listeners skip or wait to read the introduction or the initial notes or essays in classic texts because they are filled with spoilers. And we tend to feel a little bit differently about that. We're kind of... um, like spoiler ambivalent spoilers. Yeah, we we, we <laughs> yeah. either ambivalent or we like them because it helps us read more thoroughly. So as I was reading this introduction, I was like, I don't know what to think of this spoiler-wise because it does dig pretty deep into some of the episodes, which is why we're saving some of that introduction content to come back to. But I didn't really feel like it spoiled anything in the text. I felt like it was just super helpful. So I don't really know where to direct people if they're very spoiler averse. Do you have any thoughts? (laughs) That's a good question. I should have been making notes as I was going through. I mean, I do think that if you're extremely spoiler averse, um, just listen to this episode. Yeah. (laughs) We, We won't spoil anything, but we'll give you the highlights. But I think you can read the translator's note, which comes after the introduction. There, are, I don't think there are any spoilers of any of the episodes in there, but it does give you an interesting lens to read the story through, I think, and maybe an appreciation of what Emily Wilson is is going for. Um, so I, I guess that would be my, my main thing. I... Well, I, I'm just so curious now. I want to hop into Discord right now. <laughs> Maybe we'll do this afterwards. <laughs> because I wonder how many people are going to be averse to spoilers in this. And not just necessarily, like you said, how the story ends. Because I think maybe we most people have a sense of how, how it ends. 
but how each of the little episodes plays out. Yeah, it's it's going to be really interesting. Uh, yeah, we might have to pop a poll in, <laughs> in Discord or in Patreon and ask people about that. But I think we better get into uh, the meat of the introduction here where we open with a lot of literary and historical background. And there's a very thorough um, definition of an epic poem and kind of like the style and tradition that this is written in. And so we're just going to share a little bit of that here. An epic poem is, first of all, just really, 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 really long. It's a poem that is very long and it is telling an important story in the traditional formulaic language used by archaic poets for singing the tales of God's wars, journeys, and the collective memories and experiences of the Greek-speaking world. So that is the Odyssey, at least, as an epic poem. An epic poem is just a really, really long poem that tells a story, but this one specifically was a story that was meant to be told over and over again and sung, um, and that makes it really unique. Yeah, I think it's interesting how she talks about the modern connotations of epic and how that may be somewhat misleading in our expectations of this story. It is epic in scope in terms of how far Odysseus travels and kind of time. Like we always say that the Odyssey takes place over 10 years, but it's kind of like it really doesn't. (laughs) A lot of it takes place in one conversation. Yeah. And seven of the years we're just kind of like plopped in at the end of those. And then we look back on those, those first seven years. Um, so it's in some ways not super epic the way we think of it. It just follows really one, one person for the most part. Um, it's not like multi-generational, although Odysseus's son is a prominent figure. Um, and so I, I found that to be really, um, really important going in thinking about, okay, like epic in what sense in like in the journey scope? Yes, but not in necessarily the sweeping epic that we might think of when we think of long novels now. But it is epic in terms of adventure and all of the things oh, that yes. happen. It's epic in the sense that the the themes and the characters are really larger than life. And um, particularly there are gods featured in here that would have been, you know, in stories told across um, the Greek culture. And so it's it's epic, not necessarily in the story scope, but in history's kind of scope of, of where this has gone as a piece of literature. Um, and just in the sense of adventure and so much action and big things happen, it's, it's a very fun text. Um, yeah. I love how she says that in the Odyssey, I mean, we have this hero, which I think we should talk about the way she talks about heroes in here too. Oh yeah. We find the story of a man whose grand adventure is simply to go back to his own home. And I think that's so interesting is that we aren't following a hero on a quest to do something brave and wondrous and heroic. Odysseus encounters those things, but only because he's trying to get home. And that end goal really makes for a unique story. 
but a relatable one in a way that maybe other Greek hero myths are not. I have written in my notes for this hero, survival is the most amazing feat of all. And that's true. It's such, it's a survival story. It's a journey story. And that all makes it very epic. Sarah, let's talk a little bit about the style here because I I think the historical and cultural background of this work, there's still so much unknown about it. But what linguists and scholars can pull from is really the varied styles in the poem and kind of make guesses at the tradition of oral storytelling, the tradition of singers, and when these things were actually written down. So first of all, it begins in media res, which means in the middle of things. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. I mean, I think that we colloquially talk about in media res all the time when we say, uh, in this novel, the author really drops you right in the middle of the story. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's really what it what it means, right? Instead of um, maybe a more typical novel structure where we have like a beginning that lays the groundwork for who this who these characters are, what their background is, and then we follow with them to some sort of climactic moment in this story and in other stories that are in media res, it's, we're just plopped right into the middle of the action, or in this case, the inaction. We're just plopped right in the middle of Odysseus. He is languishing, um, yeah, pretty, in a pretty satisfying way on Calypso's Island. Um, there's no like lead up really to, um, a big adventure. It would make sense because like she said, the, the end goal of this story is so, um, relatable and common going home. And so the beginning is kind of that, that sort of same, um, same tone. Um, I, do we want to talk about Homer a little bit and then talk about the style? I feel like they're kind of, they go hand in hand because we call this a Homeric poem, but we don't actually really know who Homer was. And so (laughs) when we talk about Homer and we talk about this as a Homeric poem, we're really just talking about the style in which it's written. Not like, yes, we know this is the guy who wrote it. So these kind of go together. We don't really know if Homer existed, but there's speculation that he was a um, blind and illiterate bard or singer um, and that he was a maker of stories and that he is probably the one who like really pieced this story together and is kind of responsible for it as a more cohesive unit um, than just like a ton of different singers singing different pieces of it. That is the best, most basic way that I can possibly explain this. Um, But a ton of British scholars mostly have been working on this since the Renaissance, since that like (laughs) classic renewal and like the interest in all of the classics, the Greek and Roman classics, I should say. And so all we can do is linguistic analysis, historical study, 
And more recently, it's turned to the oral storytelling, which is way harder to track because it is not recorded. (laughs) We were not recording podcasts of the oral storytelling um, way back in Homer's time. Um, And so this is a written text based on the oral tradition, which means that its structure is truly unique. Yeah, I really think it's fascinating the way our presentism and our views of writers and artists comes into play when thinking about this question. Wilson says that during the Renaissance, when the Homeric poems were rediscovered in Europe, Homer was assumed to have been a writer in the same way that Virgil or Dante were writers. And it's just makes so much sense. Like even then, (laughs) even during the Renaissance, they couldn't help but view this through the lens of how they understood art and writing to work. And I think because she brings this up, the way we think of of art like novels, we always think of that individual artist. And I was really glad that she brought in instead a comparison to how movies and TV shows are written, where there's a writer's room. And, and, And these were, this was how many plays in Shakespeare's time were written as well. You had a writer's room or a group of collaborators and one person was really good at the long soliloquies and one person was really good at the humorous scenes and you kind of divided things up. And that doesn't take away from the art that's being created. It's just kind of messes with our concept of a writer. So thinking about the Odyssey and the Homeric poems and that tradition as, I mean, not a writer's room because these kind of shifted and changed and morphed over time rather than a collaborative group of people sitting together, as far as we know, (laughs) and creating it. Um, I I think that that's a really useful comparison to thinking why, not that it doesn't matter if it was one person or not, but why the art is still worthy, even if it wasn't created by one individual artist. Yeah. I think she just did a really great job in the introduction of laying that cultural groundwork and making sure that oral storytelling as a medium, because there are still cultures today who tell stories through oral storytelling, and we're still discovering oral storytelling that was passed down generations. Um, Just like lifting that and elevating it to the same level as the written word, because we can get I think scholars can get snobby about what's what's written versus the oral storytelling. Um, and, you know, I think part of that is just like you can't know everything. And it's difficult when you can't know everything. Um, but there are certain things about this epic and about um, the Homeric poems that make them easier for singers and for oral storytellers to pass on. So a couple examples of this are the epithets. Um, This is just like a short defining quality that goes with a character. So instead of describing Odysseus differently in every single scene or describing how he's feeling in every single scene, every time that Odysseus is mentioned, he has a couple of 
adjectives that go with him. So he could be like cunning Odysseus, um, or it'll be loyal Penelope. And those short descriptions are an essential characteristic and quality for that character. And they get repeated over and over. And so that makes it easier for the story to be passed through song. Um, There's also a predictable pattern in the scenes. There's like a fixed sequence that each episode follows. And obviously if it's formulaic, it's easier to remember. And so that makes sense with the oral tradition as well. Um, I think that things like the rhyme scheme and the pattern, um, some of those came up a little bit more in the translator's note, but is there anything else that you want to add about like stylistically how this connects to the oral tradition? Um, I liked how, and this again was in the translator's note, but she talks about how Homer's rhythm is very like propulsive and moves you, moves you forward. Um, and you can hear you can hear that really well when reading it aloud. And we'll get into just general tips for reading this book, but reading a few stanzas aloud to yourself each section, I think is a great tip for hearing these things. I don't think that you need to completely understand the rhythm or even notice it to understand this poem and to get a lot out of it. But um, I think it might help you and us appreciate it more um, by by hearing that. Also, this it's an episodic story. I mean, you you mentioned this like each the each episode has a pattern, but the fact even that there are episodes um, is important to this. And and one of the things that maybe we'll see carried on into future literary works is that episodic adventure. And I mean, I, I think again, the comparison to television is so great because you could, people would sit and listen to much of this story over like one long banquet. We, again, we think, but you could also understand why things end where they do in the sense of closing off one episode and then leaving you wanting more. And that's helpful both for the bard, the singer to like close things and then be able to pick up, but also for the audience to be able to follow from episode to episode and, and remain curious. I love on page 13 of the introduction after Emily Wilson compares this more to the writer's room of a a TV show or a movie. And she says, perhaps we are more prepared than readers of the past to approach the Odyssey as a poem that exists as a mostly unified whole, but which was created by multiple different people over a long period of time. And I like that because it's like, okay, we can access this and hold multiple things at once. We can say like, this is a unified story. We can read it as a story from beginning to end, but we can also, if we notice some discrepancies, just kind of recognize where those come from. If the voice sounds a little bit different in one episode compared to the other, we can just kind of pass that off because we are used to, I'm thinking of like Ted Lasso. And if you watch the seasons back to back. And if you pay attention, and this goes for most TV shows, if you pay attention to who's directing the episode or who wrote the episode, sometimes you can really tell because the tone is so different. And so I just think it's something that's really fun to pick up on. I don't think like with the Odyssey, I think especially when you have one person translating it, I don't think it's that big of a deal 
because Emily Wilson is the one kind of like creating a more unified She's the voice. second unifier or third or fourth or yeah. hundredth. <laughs> exactly. All right. So the other thing she does in this introduction is she gives us like, she doesn't really call these lenses or themes or anything, but she just gives us some context and some I, great ideas for how to read the Odyssey. Not not literally, um, but in terms of of finding um, important threads throughout the story that can unify it thematically or maybe help us um, enrich our reading experience. Because I think for many of many readers, a question is like, why read this? What does it have to say to us in our present day? And she she offers some suggestions for that as well as helping us root it in its historical context um, in order to appreciate it more. So so one idea for how to read the Odyssey is um, through the lens of hospitality and thinking about that theme of hospitality throughout the, the book, but in a very particular cultural way, which I'm not sure I had really heard f- fully described and defined in such a I don't know, helpful way until I read this introduction. Yeah. My mind was kind of blown because I certainly, when I taught this text, we talked a lot about hospitality, but her specific way of defining it here was just fascinating to me. And that is the gift of a skilled translator who is working in different languages because I didn't necessarily have access to the Greek to like make these, um, I don't know, make these leaps that she does. So um, she talks about hospitality and references it as xenia, um, which you might recognize as a root word in xenophobia or xenophilia. Mm-hmm. Um, and she defines it as guest friendship and a networking tool for expanding power. So it goes beyond just welcoming people into your home. It goes beyond just being a good host. It is beyond what we think of as hospitality in our American or Western culture. And just as an example of what happens when Xenia goes wrong, if we think about the start of the Trojan War, Paris stealing Helen violates these norms or in the absence of Xenia and guest friendship and respect, there is violence. But um, so we have this concept that like on one side should be really warm and friendly and welcoming and giving. And in its absence on the other side, we have a justification for killing and plundering and horror. I think this is fascinating and it explains so much because I think one struggle for contemporary readers is like Odysseus doesn't seem like a particularly friendly guy. So his like insistence mm-hmm. on the importance of being welcomed into people's homes and and all of that is like feels a little I don't know against character or hard to hard to understand. But within that context of it not being about warmth and welcoming in the way we think about it, but in about 
maintaining norms and and power relationships, it makes so much more sense. And that's not to say that there aren't like lovely values here. I think she she says, you know, that in the intro, it's the responsibility of male householders to offer hospitality of this kind to any visitor, even uninvited guests, strangers, and homeless beggars. Like there's this really like like loveliness to it. But I think that it's important to understand that that doesn't start with the feeling of warmth. It starts with the expectations and cultural norms that um, support the power Yes, structures. it's very political. So I loved when Emily Wilson said that you can read the Odyssey as a sequence of case studies in the concept of Xenia, in the concept of hospitality. And um, she says that each host, so through these episodes, Odysseus encounters various monsters, various uh, like second-tier goddesses, um, and different people hosting. And each host in these episodes seems to offer a perversion or a frightening exaggeration of ordinary modes of hospitality. So, for example, instead of feeding them, um, a uh, host might try and make their guest stay, which I thought this was so interesting that um, she shared to force a visitor to stay is just as bad as pushing him to mm. go. So like keeping a visitor too long is just as rude as sending them out the door and saying like, bye, party's over. I'm going to bed. <laughs> and um, that is true. Sending, <laughs> right? <laughs> sending someone off is just as important as welcoming them in. It's all part that is part of the process and part of the routine and the formula of hospitality. So I just found this whole section so fascinating. And I... I'm really excited to read this as like I this is a really helpful lens. We're look she gives us a theme that we can look for. We can look for this sequence of case studies as a concept um in the concept of hospitality. So another suggestion she makes is thinking about the epic poem as an extended balancing act between Athena's desire to restore Odysseus to honor and Poseidon's to curse him with eternal wandering. And this idea of balance and, this is really important, retribution being the driving force of the story is also really interesting. So she talks about how often we can we can read in connection with Xenia, the idea of um, the gods being defenders of Xenia. And so when somebody uh, doesn't follow those norms, they are punished, et cetera. But she said it's too far to read it as the gods kind of being upholders of morality as we see it in general, because the gods are not moral arbiters or immoral figures. They are People, not people, they're gods <laughs> who care about balance and retribution. So it's not about morality. It's not even about fairness or equity. It's about balance. And that constant seeking of kind of vengeance and one one upsmanship among the gods themselves. Yeah, they're not just 
messing with the lives of the humans in the story. They're messing with each other. And the humans are just pawns in that scheme. So one thing I've seen a couple of questions about already in Discord and just in our DMs, people want kind of like a primer on some Greek mythology. And we'll share some resources. We'll share plenty of resources with you. But you do not need to know all of the gods and goddesses in order to access this text. In fact, in this introduction, it's pretty well laid out. These are the main players. So we have Zeus. Um, We have Hermes, who is the messenger god and the god of travelers and kind of a trickster. It's kind of like the fairy puck. Um, Athena. And she's probably the most important in this story. She is a military goddess. She's into technical expertise and strategy. She's really intelligent. And so she just, she's really likes Odysseus. She's kind of on his team. We have Poseidon, um, who is the god of the sea and untamed sea and storms. And he's kind of that antagonistic force towards Odysseus. So that's pretty much it. Like there are some other people who are related to the gods. If you've read Circe um, by Madeline Miller, you know how she kind of factors in here, but she'll come up in an episode. Like she's not the one kind of pulling the string. So I think those are the only gods that you really need to know. I could be missing some, but those are the key players here. Yeah, I I, I think that's... Um... That's great. And I'm sure there are, we'll, we'll find and link to at some point, some charts that show kind of like who's on team Odysseus, who's his antagonist. And it can, there are con- consistent players. And then sometimes the gods, they are fickle, they change um, their mind. <laughs> and so it can evolve a bit. Speaking of goddesses, goddesses are some of the main, the primary female figures we have in this text. Um, we, I think, Chelsea can't help ourselves but read most classic literature through a feminist lens of some sort. So thinking about the way the book depicts women, um, what it says about what it means to be a woman, and maybe paying particularly close attention to how Emily Wilson, as the first woman to translate this text into English, portrays the women will be really interesting. The We'll meet a handful of women in this text, including Athena, as you mentioned, Chelsea, and then, of course, Penelope, Odysseus's wife, who we actually do get scenes of of her and her time at home waiting for, for Odysseus. And we'll, of course, meet Circe and Calypso and then kind of a, a bevy of, of slaves um, and women who Odysseus encounters in in that regard. I think that Wilson has some interesting points to make about the way women are depicted in here. And, and largely she asks questions about um, sexual fidelity and how essential that is to the concept of being a good woman and, and a, a good wife. Yeah. I, I, I like the way that she, I, I think as a translator, right, she's not trying to force a particular interpretation of the women in the story. It seems that she's wants to write a translation that allows for possibility in the readings of these characters. And she also kind of says that 
she does not think that it's against like a feminist project to show women who are strong and smart and capable, but trapped by the confines in which they live. So for, well, it gets a little spoilery, but there's, and so I won't be specific, but there's a reading that of the book that suggests that Penelope maybe knows something beyond what the text says she knows. And Emily Wilson says, well, I want to allow for that possibility in my text, but I also don't think that it's anti-feminist to say Penelope could know that if it weren't for the culture and structure she lives in. So I I think she's doing some really interesting balancing, (laughs) once again, of her own positionality as clearly a feminist translator and writer and being cognizant of the world in which these women would have lived. And typically, when we read a text through the feminist lens, we are combining it with more historical context. But here, we don't really get that very much. Uh, She says up front, we know frustratingly little about women in archaic Greece. And so we're really just reading it with this story in mind. Like we we have um, some inklings about the positions that women were in, how they played a role politically, um, how their worth was tied to their sexual fidelity um, and their ability to create children, you know, <laughs> things that have been part of uh, the feminist conversation since the dawn of time, right? But um, she kind of offers this question that we can ask ourselves as we're reading if we want to use this lens, which I really, really liked. Um, She says that it's possible that this text shows what women might be capable of and questions if their potential should be celebrated or repressed. And so I think that that's a great question that feels very kind of neutral, Mm -hmm. but is very much a feminist question. Um, and I think it can be applied to all of the female characters in the text. So, um, there's kind of this question of like, what, what could feminine power do in this world if unleashed? I love that she brings up an anecdote about a scholar who was sure that Homer must've been a woman because- uh, no man could have been as sympathetic to his female characters as Homer. <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, no, no, that's not right. Um, okay. We also just want to throw out the idea of reading this with a psychoanalytic lens. This is something we are going to delve deeper into in a class. Um, but you could read this as a character study of Odysseus, who is a very complicated hero. And by hero here, we mean um, kind of protagonist because she tells us that in the in the Greek, the idea of hero really meant kind of a warrior, a conquering figure, which Odysseus is. But once again, we have to remember his goal is not to conquer at this point in the story, but to return home. And that the idea of a hero did not have the moral weight that we give it today. Um, so a really interesting way to read Odysseus, keeping in mind what was it, what do we mean by hero? What did they mean by hero? 
And I like that she points out that Odysseus was a complicated, complex figure, even at the time that this was composed. Um, I think it can be easy to pick this up and think, oh, this just must have been the kind of figure that was celebrated at this time. And there might be a little bit of that, but um, Odysseus was complex even then. Um, We will talk about more kind of psychoanalytic ways to read this book in that class, but thinking thinking about him and his uh, potential trauma from having just been at war for 10 years, his trauma of being trapped um, is an, an interesting and fairly contemporary way to read this book, but certainly available to us as a reading and authentic to what, um, what the poem shows. Yeah. A couple of questions that are brought up. Um, these are pulled kind of directly from the hated Odysseus section of the intro. I like the potential of reading through these lenses. So um, one question is, can a military hero adjust to a new civilian world? And is he responsible for all of the deaths that he has caused and will cause throughout this epic poem? I think that those questions provide a really rich reading experience and we'll dig into those a lot, but I I just have to think that one of the big reasons why Odysseus and this story is still iconic and popular and retold and we're still fascinated with it is because he's so complicated. I don't yes. find any of the other uh, Greek heroes to be this complex. And maybe that's because they're not all necessarily human. Like a lot of the Greek classic stories that we get, um, like Hercules is a demigod. And so he doesn't necessarily have access to all of this humanity that Odysseus has necessarily. Um, I think there's, there's a lot that we can talk about there and I'm excited to dig into his character a little bit more. Well, and she talks about how the story begins with him choosing to go home, choosing to be mortal, to be with his mortal wife without much explanation and how much richness that adds to his character and to the story as it goes on. And I think that we are so, um, we know the story so well that it's about Odysseus trying to go home that thinking about how radical it is that he wants to go home and and leave, you know, what many uh, other Greek heroes have fought for <laughs> um, is really interesting. All right, Chelsea. I mean, this everything in this introduction has is interesting and fantastic. But we need to move, I think, to the translator's note and just share a few of our key takeaways from from this section. This is much shorter. And so if you don't want to read the introduction, I still definitely think reading the translator's note, which is what, maybe like eight pages or so, um, is really worthwhile. The one of the key takeaways is that Emily Wilson was a mythology girl. I mean, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but she talks about how she fell in love with Greek mythology was because she got to play Athena in a elementary school play version of, of the Odyssey when she was eight. 
And yeah, she loved this it is so much. Full circle. Full circle. <laughs> um, so I I loved learning that. A couple of things that I loved from the translator's note and made made note of myself so that I can pay attention to these things. Um, one thing she mentions is that so much repetition allows her to explore multiple connotations of the epithets. So even though these characters are described in the same way over and over and over and over again in the core text, that means that she gets to explore the connotations of that and maybe use some slightly different variations based on the scene. So I loved that. Um, The main things that I pulled that she's really going for are maintaining the rapidity of the Homeric style. Sarah, I think you referenced referenced this before where in the Homeric style, it's like one thing happens after another and it's like you're not that you're racing to the conclusion, but there is a readability and there is a page turning aspect to this where it's like you can imagine people leaning forward in their chairs to hear more or you want to turn the page. So that's something that she's maintaining, directness of expression. She's keeping the language simple and straightforward. This is a text that, like with so many classics, people feel like, because we call it a classic, it has to be flowery and the language has to read very, um, with very long words and a very stylized and very scholarly and very archaic kind of way. But at the time that this was written, it would have been in language that everybody could understand. And so she wants to maintain that sense of colloquial language. Um, I think something that's going to be really fun for our close reading is looking at the rhythm and the musicality of her translation and just like how she transforms this into trans. I I have to think translating poetry is more difficult than translating prose because you have to maintain the poetry. Well, and she talks about how many translations of the Odyssey have not maintained the poetry. Like they, they make it look like poetry on the page, but it's not working within a rhythm. And she really wanted to work within a, in a particular rhythm. Um, so interesting and cool that she, that, that her translation has the exact same number of lines as the original, which I would have thought was common, but seems like it's actually quite, quite rare. Um, because often the translations are longer than the original, which is fascinating. Um, and yeah, like you said, just the, the colloquial language is something I'm really excited to explore. And I just, I love the way she, she phrases that. She says, my translation is, I hope recognizable as an epic poem, but it is one that avoids trumpeting its own status with bright, noisy linguistic fireworks in order to invite a more thoughtful consideration of what the narrative means and the way it matters. And so she's really focused on the narrative. Yes, clearly the language is important to her in terms of how she talked about um, connotation and the epithets and the rhythm, but it seems like her translation really is about narrative and narrative possibility. Two kind of keynotes I made, um, about the translator's note just as almost holistic takeaways was that it seems like she's very concerned with with what the text allows for 
and making sure she keeps possibilities open in her translation, that she's not trying to make her translation fit one key theme or one key takeaway she's allowing for possibility. And it really seemed to me like what much of her translator's note said was how focused she is on the reader and the reading experience. And we often, we talk about um, how faithful a translation is or an adaptation is. We talked about that a lot in our adaptation semester. And it seems like she wants to be faithful to the readers. She wants us to have as similar an experience to what it would be like to hear this thousands of years ago as we possibly can. And I just think that is so, so cool. I loved, I mean, I practically cheered when I got to the section where she says it's traditional in statements like the translator's note to bewail one's own inadequacy when trying to be faithful to the original. And she says, I think we need to rethink these terms when we talk about translation. And she goes on to really confidently explain her choices. And I just had such a like, you go girl attitude when reading this. She talks about how there is no such thing as a quote, faithful translation. Every translation is a different text from the original, which we talked about quite a bit in our season on adaptation theory. Sarah, you have mentioned this when talking about Madeline Miller and saying there is no one true myth and that every interpretation of these myths, because they've been told over and over again, is a, quote, true retelling. Um, And I just felt like this fit really well in those topics that we've talked about before. She talks about how modern translations of ancient texts exist in a time and place just like the ancient text did. And so she's leaning into these modern um, the modern language and the modern translation. So it feels like it's of our time. And I I just loved all of those notes. All right, Chelsea. Well, is there anything else you want to make sure we touch on about the intro or the translator's notes before we um, just kind of preview what episodes will look like from here on out? I just have one quote in my notes that I want to read. Um, and I think it frames the reading experience really well for us. And then we can get into some final tips in our recap structures. So um, the Odyssey is a text that allows us to explore our desire for power and permanence in the world of imagination while also showing us the darker side of these deep human dreams, hopes, and fears. I just love that. She's a great writer. Yes, I'm very excited to continue (laughs) with this edition. All right. Well, Chelsea, you've taught this book before, um, and we like to share just general reading tips going into any big book or any like dense classic. So do you have any kind of go-to tips and strategies for reading The Odyssey? Oh, man. For The Odyssey, um, I will just say – not every single episode is as exciting as the <laughs> last. So there are certain episodes that I would pull out and highlight for my students. So if you're feeling like this is supposed to be an adventure, why are these people talking so much <laughs> and telling all of this history? Not every single episode is the kind of like big, exciting episode. So hang tight for those really exciting episodes. Um 
I think just reading it as a story, which I think Emily Wilson's translation is going to do really well. I think that that can be a little bit difficult with poetry. So I think if you've read this before, once or twice, or like me, several times teaching it, you can probably pay a little bit more attention to the language and the poetry this time around. If you've never read it before, I would say don't let the rhythm and the structure of the poetry aspect of it keep you from accessing the story. Don't read it as a poem if this is your first time reading it. Just kind of turn it into prose a little bit more in your head. Don't like read it with the rhythm, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, That's just, that's my recommendation, but depends on you as a reader. Um, but that's, that's what I think I would suggest just because I think when you're reading poetry, it can really get stuck in your head in the rhythm and you can't necessarily pick out the, uh, story of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think that makes a ton of sense. I think that, um, maybe I, it's, it stinks that this audiobook is an audible exclusive, but mm-hmm. if you have audible or you're willing to buy one book on audible, um, Claire Danes reads this and it's really good. And I do think that she reads it extremely well, um, in not getting just sometimes even professional readers read aloud and you hear them emphasizing the rhythm instead of the story. And she does a really good job of emphasizing the story of keeping up that rapidity, that momentum, um, of bringing in kind of the, the humor and the various tones throughout. So if you dip in and out of the audiobook, um, I think that might be be helpful. And then the other thing I think is we are going to be providing recaps and we're going to talk about what those will look like. I think for for all of those listening, one thing for you to decide is how you want to use those recaps. Do you want to listen to them after you read a section? That's fantastic. Or you might want to listen to the recap, get a sense of the summary of what's going on, and then read the section. Or you might want to listen to the summary part of our section, press pause, and then come back and read the analysis or listen to the analysis part of our recap after you've read the section so that you are get to come up with your own themes and interpretations along the way because our analysis of the themes are not the right answers. Um, they're just kind of what interests us and the threads we're pulling together. Of course, there are also tons of other summaries available online. So you could read the Sparknote summaries of the books that we're reading, read the text, and then come back to our recaps at the end of the week. So there are lots of different ways to do it, and it might take some trial and error to figure out what feels best to each of you. I think that sounds excellent, Sarah. I do want to point everyone, we will attach the schedule bookmarks that we created for you. So you can print that out and stick it in your copy of the Odyssey or save it if you're listening to the audiobook version so that you know which sections each recap will cover. And in each recap, we will share a summary of each book in that section of reading. We'll keep this kind of quick, just the highlights, the main players, what happened, who's involved. And then we will share some general analysis of that section as a whole, but maybe broken up into the episodes in the books as well. So 
We'll talk about some themes. We'll talk about character development. We'll throw in some cultural historical context as needed, maybe some things with the language. Um, And then we're going to do a little bit of close reading, which might look different in each recap. Sometimes maybe we will close read just two lines. Um, Sometimes maybe we will do a close reading of a full page or two, but close reading just means we're looking at a piece of text really closely, really deeply, and we are dissecting and analyzing the language and the meaning and the context and just really, really focusing in on that piece of text. So we're very excited for these recap episodes and we hope that that structure really appeals to your nerdy love of learning. And we just can't wait to get started with you. All right, Chelsea. Well, I feel like this episode was epic in many senses of the word. It was long. It was formulaic. And it's telling an important story about how we're going to approach this text. And so I hope that this was helpful to everyone who's going to be reading along with us. Or if you are not going to be reading along with us, save well, you've already made it this far, but uh, <laughs> you could come back to this at any time. I think this would be maybe a good episode even for some of the teachers in our audience to use in the classroom. Hopefully this is worthwhile and full of useful tidbits for our whole classics club. So we'll be back next week with a regular Friday bonus episode for everyone and our first recap episode for our literature scholars. Um, And until then, we declare after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything than of a book. Bye.